0: Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help! Test Double is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at TestDouble. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's com slash greater.
1: And welcome to episode 256 of Greater Than Code, a nice round number. I'm your co-host, Ray Hendricks, and I'm here with my friend, Jacob Stobel. Thank you so much.
2: I'm joined with this week's guest, Chris Ferdinandi. Chris helps people learn vanilla JavaScript. He believes there's a simpler, more resilient way to make things for the web. His Developer Tips newsletter is read by thousands of developers each weekday. Learn more at gomakethings.com. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, I should say. We had you on just before COVID, we were saying, before the show started. So it's been quite a while.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me back. It's been kind of a, a wild 18 months. Last time I was on the show, I think we spent a lot of time talking about how modern development best practices might be ruining the web. And this time I was hoping we might have a little bit of chat about how that's still kind of the case, but There's also a whole ton of new things that have happened in the last 18 months that may be swinging the pendulum back in the other direction, creating a web that's faster, a little bit more resilient, and works better for everybody.
1: That sounds great. But first, uh, has your superpower changed? Do you still have the same superpower?
3: I don't remember exactly what I said last time, but assuming it's derailing conversations, then the answer is absolutely yes. That has always been and always will be my superpower. I am great at tangents.
1: Well, this 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 podcast is just a series of tangents stitched together. So
3: excellent, always makes for a fun conversation. Yeah, very true.
1: Have you heard about uh, this new internet protocol, Gemini? No, I have not. So it's like somewhere between Gopher and HTTP, and so it's a plain text protocol with no mark no markup no xml no html and you can have links but they have to be on a separate line so you basically are sharing these like plain text documents and there's no javascript there's no css and Mm -hmm. people are sort of seeing it as a sort of revitalization of what the web used to be about No click tracking, you know, Mm -hmm. no injected advertisements.
3: Yeah. This is weird. So like there's a few years ago where I've been like, yes, that's what the web needs. I feel like I'm a little bit more pragmatic now as I have less hair and more white in the beard. Like that seems really cool in some ways and like a huge step back in others. I have very mixed, mixed feelings about that as a gut reaction, knowing nothing else about it other than what you just told me.
1: What do you think is like the happy medium between where we are now and 1990s text protocols?
3: Yeah. So in some ways, I feel like the web maybe peaked with LiveJournal, you know, or maybe MySpace. MySpace made it really easy to kind of hack on the web. And that was really cool. But like the text only web, I don't necessarily think I'd like to go back to. I think I'm actually not even really opposed to commercialization on the web, In large part because I'm only able to do what I can do professionally because of that. But I would love something that really curtails all the like spyware for profit kind of web stuff over tracking. Like I have none of that on on any of my websites. Like I, I removed all of my analytics, all of my like, I don't even track opens on my newsletter. And so I really like the interactive and immersive nature of the web. I don't mind the commerce side of the web. I really hate the whole like big brother-esque, we're always watching you kind of nature of the web. I think that's really like awkward and creepy. And I also, I feel like sometimes we we, we try to run before we can walk on the web. And so we end up throwing like a boatload of JavaScript at the front end to make up for limitations in the platform. And we, we have a tendency to create experiences that are really um, slow and brittle and super prone to breaking. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I think about how the web has gotten, or the internet as a whole has gotten like four to five times faster in the last decade, but the average web page still loads at about the same speed as it did, you know, like a decade ago. <laughs> the original Space Jam website loaded in about the same amount of time that the new Space Jam website loaded, even though the internet has gotten so much faster in that time. And uh, a large part of that has to do with the way we, we build and uh, the tooling that we use.
2: Just sort of consuming that extra capacity that we get through faster connections, et cetera.
3: Yeah, Yeah. For every extra, like, you know, megabit of internet speed that we get, you know, we, we throw a bunch more, more JavaScript on the front end. And we have a tendency, it's really weird for me to, as someone who teaches JavaScript for a living, tell people to use less JavaScript, but like the web keeps moving to a more JavaScript driven future. And JavaScript is the most fragile and, bad for performance part of the front end stack. And, uh, you know, I feel like we, in the last maybe five years or so, we saw the pendulum swing really far in the, the JavaScript end of things. And I still think the phrase always bet on JavaScript is a good one. I I don't think JavaScript is going anywhere. I don't, in abstract hate it i like you know the interactivity that it brings is good i think the the challenges around how we we lean on it heavily for things that it's not necessarily the best tool for the job for and i'm starting to see a new slate of tools that take advantage of some of the things it's great at in a way that doesn't punish the users for those decisions so that's pretty cool we can dig into that if if you both want to there's a lot of kind of new stuff in the works that i think um has the ability to maybe fix some of the challenges that we've been facing up to this point.
1: What would you say are some of the the sort of low hanging fruit in terms of implementations, you know, mm. design that people could take that would just make their app a little bit better, you know, play a little bit more nicely, be a little less extractive in terms of tracking everything the user does.
3: Yeah. So I, one of the weirdest things that I've just encountered on the web there's a certain subset of a lot of times it's e-commerce kind of vendors sometimes it's saas but they're loading like eight different tracking and analytics scripts on a single page through all sorts of different vendors you know so they'll load like google analytics salesforce and you know like three or four other kind of vendors that all do some version of the same thing tracking what you click on and where you go next. And the impression I've gotten from talking to folks is that this is a byproduct of um, having a bunch of different internal departments that all want access to data and no one wanting to be like, this is the tool we're using. And so they all just kind of chuck it in there. You know, so that that's probably like a really big offender there. And there's a couple of things that you can do about that. First is, um, I feel like, a lot of developers and a lot of designers kind of have this, I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to try to think of the right phrase here, but it's almost like your job is to be an advocate for the user. And so like, just because your manager or, you know, executive is saying like, we need this doesn't necessarily mean like your job is to just be like, okay, let me throw that in there. I liken it to like, if you were building a house and a customer told you they wanted you to install a hairdryer in the bathtub. Like you could do that for them because they asked, but it's a really bad idea. And maybe it's your professional responsibility to tell them that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that is sort of the thing that like distinguishes a profession, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you have ethical obligations to uphold.
3: And this is where I think you get into like the, the pro and con of, the web being an industry that you can get into without professional certifications and trainings, it's like anybody can do it. But there's also not necessarily, you know, that that same level of like, there's no certification board that's like, you're going to lose your certification if you do these things that are harmful. You know, and for most of us, for a lot of what we do, like the side effect of having eight tracking scripts on a website is not you know, like life threatening, but depending on the type of site that you offer and the services that you, you provide, it can be like, I think a lot of people kind of get taken a little aback by that, but I've heard multiple stories in the last few years about utility companies, you know, electricity, gas, whatever, where utilities get knocked out in a really bad storm. And so people are relying on their smartphones on 3g and they live in areas where connectivity is not particularly great. And you know their Wi Fi is down because their power's out, and trying to connect to the electric company website to be able to file a claim, like my electricity's out, or even just find the contact number to call them, and like the site just keeps crashing and reloading, and they can't open it. Like not having access to your utility company because somebody was irresponsible with how they built the website, like really sucks, and depending on what the weather is like, like I live in a very cold climate up in the US and the Northeast. And, you know, if the temperatures drop below freezing and there's a down tree blocking your ability to get in and out of the area and you don't have electricity or heat, like that can be a really serious thing. And um, I think a lot of times we just think about, like, I'm just building websites. Um, but it, it, can, it can be so much more than that, depending on the industry you work in and the type of work that you do. Yeah, so the whole, um, you know, There's no equivalent of you're going to get disbarred if You do these bad things. Like, there's just, there isn't that for our profession, Um, which can be a good thing, but it's also There's no
1: equivalent of like the city code that's, you know, 2,000 pages long, but also means that you can't build a bathroom that electrocutes people and you can't put asbestos in the walls, (laughs) you know? And the like, the counter argument is that Mm -hmm. regulations are onerous and they stifle innovation, right? Mm -hmm. But do you want innovation in less safe ways to build houses? Like, is that what we're looking for right
3: yeah i had a similar argument once with someone about accessibility on the web and how like it shouldn't be legally required for sites to build themselves accessibly because it stifles innovation for like one person shops who are just trying to like throw something up quickly and like i don't know like at some point it just boils down to like a moral argument and it's really hard to have a like an objective conversation about like should you care about other people and doing the right thing? Like, I don't really know how to have that kind of conversation in a, um, like a logical kind of way, you know?
2: And I'm thinking about like where the innovation can happen is the big platforms, you know, your WordPresses, your Mm Wixes, Squarespace's, what innovations can they think of that can make accessibility the default like the you know like help people yeah. fall into the pit of su- success
3: mm-hmm,
2: like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what yeah. what are the new innovations that they haven't come up with yet that just sort of make accessibility just sort of happen magically for someone yeah, who man. is yeah
3: mm-hmm. yeah i also sometimes feel like it's a little bit of a um well so there's two aspects here i feel like the um like you can have innovation or regulation but not both thing is a bit of a like a false dichotomy you know, I think one of the things we've seen in, and my my liberalness is gonna show a little bit here, but like one of the things we've seen in in like unregulated capitalism is that it doesn't necessarily drive innovation. It just drives like more ways to squeeze profit out of people. And I think you see that on the web with kind of the current state of internet surveillance and ad tech. Do you as a consumer feel like you've gotten a lot of innovation out of all the new ways that Large companies have figured out how to track what you do on the web, so they can, you know, sell more toothpaste to you. Because I, you know, I certainly don't. So that's that's one aspect of it. And the other is, I feel like sometimes we're overly obsessed with innovation for innovation's sake. And there's something to be said for the boring, predictable web. Websites that try to be different just for the sake of being different often just end up being confusing and unusable. And I don't necessarily want that in my web experience yeah, I just, I find that particularly frustrating. You know, I, I just, I'm a really big advocate of like the boring web. I like when I show up on a website and I know exactly how to use it and I know how to move around and I don't have to like follow a whole bunch of like pop-up tutorials just to figure out how to like achieve the task I'm there to achieve.
1: And if you look at the the context that's driving some of this behavior, you know, from startups, from from UX, you know, engineers at startups, it's often that their business model depends on being able to sell customer data. You know, there are a lot of mobile apps that if they lost the ability to sell their customers data would cease to exist. And so I guess the question is does it is it justified, you know, should they should they exist if that's the only way they can exist?
3: I struggle with this a fair bit because I use and have benefited from free sell customer data services in the past. I'm of the mind that like I personally would pay for like, let's just use Twitter as an example, right? If I had the ability to pay to use Twitter and they would stop recommending all these completely irrelevant ads to me in my timeline all the time, I would probably pay a not insignificant amount of money for that. But I know there's a lot of people who either wouldn't or couldn't afford to. And the value of Twitter to me would go down substantially if a bunch of people dropped off the service. And so, yeah, that's a really good question that I don't have a great answer for. I feel like there's a balance somewhere between where we are today and like this ideal, like you're never tracked ever kind of state. I don't know what it is, (laughs) but uh, I know there is one, one just kind of related related thing since we're talking about ad tech is a lot of these third party scripts are some of the biggest offenders when it comes to you know slowing down performance on the web they just they add a lot of latency into the sites and i just saw this interesting project this morning from uh, a guy by the name of adam bradley bradley rather called party town i don't know if either of you have heard of this yet but it's essentially a lightweight interface that allows you to load and run your third-party scripts from uh, like a web worker instead of on the main thread. You know, one of the biggest challenges with a lot of these scripts in JavaScript is that JavaScript is single-threaded. And so... You know, all of these things block other stuff from happening because they're on like the one main, I shouldn't say single thread, single thread within the browser, but service workers and other web workers kind of run on the separate thread in the background, but don't have access to the DOM. And so Adam Bradley created this really interesting that I haven't had time to properly play around with yet library that kind of allows you to bridge that gap. So you can run these scripts off that main thread, but still kind of give them those hooks into the DOM where they're needed, with ideally the potential of reducing the overall load on the main thread and the latency and performance issues that come from that. The other thing that I think a lot of, um, I guess, another angle you could pull at here is the fact that tracking and analytics don't have to be as privacy invasive as they are. I think you see this in things like Paul Jarvis's analytics platform, Fathom, which is so privacy minded that it doesn't require a GDPR notification on your website to use so it's not doing this really invasive follow you all over the internet kind of tracking naturally doing that dramatically reduces its that data's value for like advertisers but if you're looking to use that data for you as a business it still gets you the kind of information you need without sacrificing your users privacy you know so it'll tell you things like what pages people are looking at and, you know, how frequently certain things on your site convert without, you know, you needing to know that after leaving your site, John Smith, you know, went to Colgate and bought a tube of toothpaste and then went to Amazon and bought a new kayak and like all that kind of stuff. There's a balance somewhere. I'm not hundred percent sure where it is, but I'm seeing a lot of interesting kind of ways of coming at this problem.
2: Yeah. I'm going to be very speculative here because I I can't claim to know about all this stuff, but I would guess that a lot of users that are just sort of plugging Google analytics, just drop it into their site. Mm-hmm. They, them, they have no personal interest in all that sort of advanced stuff. Like they're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. They are going to, they, they do want know about conversions and you know what, yep. you know, that simple stuff anyway. And really they're just, you know, <laughs> funneling more data to Google.
3: Um, yeah, honestly, a big place. part of the reason why I pulled analytics from all of my stuff is it just wasn't giving me that much value. I was tracking all this data that I wasn't actually using. or Not even track. I was basically giving Google all this data about my users for free that I wasn't really taking meaningful action on anyways. And I'd imagine for a lot of, like you said, a lot of folks who are using these scripts, they're not really doing much with them and probably don't need nearly as much information as they're as they're sucking up. Yeah. So ad tech is a big a big part of the challenge with the modern web. But I actually um I I think one of the other kind of related problems is the the fact that we're using we're using JavaScript for all the things, right? So like the entire front end is being powered and like generated with JavaScript. And that just creates not just performance issues, but like extreme fragility in the things that we build just because as a scripting language, JavaScript is so unforgiving when it runs into errors or when things go wrong, you know, it's, it's never fun when you like click a navigation element or click a button or try to load a page and nothing happens. And like that just, that happens so often because of JavaScript. So for like the last 3 years I've been kind of on this this tirade about how JavaScript is ruining the front end and we're starting to see a bunch of new tools now that take some of the best parts of all of the JavaScript we've been shipping to the front end and get rid of all the stuff that makes it so terrible or at least minimize it as much as possible. And so that's been really interesting to see. So Two of the bigger trends I've I've seen here are around micro libraries and pre-compilers. So if you're both interested, I'd love to dig into that a little bit. If you have another way you'd like to take this conversation, that's totally fine too. It sounds Sounds good to me. me. sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just to kind of set the scene here. So I have lost track of the number of times in the last few years that I've heard people say, you need to use a JavaScript framework in your app. Because it's better for performance. So you know the real DOM is slow. React uses a virtual DOM, so it's faster. Or if you write vanilla JavaScript, you're just building your own framework. I, just, I hear stuff like this all the time, and it it drives me nuts because it's not true. But the thing I think people don't always realize is like that can potentially be true, depending on how your UI is structured. So like if you have a view source on Twitter, right, their like button is nested within 13 other divs and is itself a div. And so like doing the diffing whenever you update the UI with like an absurdly nested structure like that is going to be costly. But I think you could also argue that that's just bad HTML. And you could probably structure that differently and better. And React itself is 30 kilobytes of JavaScript minified and gzipped that unpacks in the browser into like, I think it's like a megabyte or two of JavaScript when it's all done. It's huge and all that abstraction is really really costly. So on one end of the the spectrum, I've seen kind of the rise of micro libraries which take some of the best concepts of libraries like React and Vue, state-based UI, DOM diffing, where you know, when you make an update, you only change the stuff that needs changing. And then they provide it in a much smaller package that gets you closer to I guess closer to the metal is maybe the best phrase here. They remove as many abstractions as possible. And in doing so, they they mean you have to load less JavaScript, which is an instant win on initial page load time. And then by removing abstractions, the actual interactions are faster themselves as well. So for example, a state change in Preact, which is a three kilobyte alternative to React that uses the same API, is four times faster than that same state change in React. Even though you're using the same patterns you're just loading a much smaller footprint and you shed some features but not all and you end up with you know that same kind of user experience or developer experience if you if you like the react developer experience but with a much smaller footprint and a much kind of friendlier experience for the people who ultimately use the thing you build similarly for a while alpine js was gaining some traction it was another small library built uh, kind of based on the way Vue works. Um, And then Evan uh, Evan Yu, who built Vue, was so inspired by it that he just recently released Petite Vue, um, which is a small subset of Vue built for progressive enhancement that's like a fraction of the size. And so I find those really, really intriguing because they take some of the best parts and then they get rid of all all the cruft. On the other end of the spectrum, though, are folks who have started to realize that you can get some of those same developer benefits without passing on any of that cost to the user. And to be honest, I'm finding that aspect of things a lot more intriguing. So this takes the form of proper frameworks or compilers, where rather than authoring your JavaScript, shipping it to the browser, and then having the browser generate the HTML from it at runtime in the browser or in the client, you still author your content in JavaScript. But then a compiler builds that into HTML converts your kind of library-based code into plain old vanilla JavaScript without the abstractions. And that's what gets shipped to the browser. So Rich Harris, a couple of years ago, built Svelte. And it was, as far as I know, the kind of the the first of these tools. I'm sure there have probably been others before it, but Rich's is the one that, that kind of got most popular. And uh, yeah, it's just really, really interesting because you write with a similar pattern that you might in React, but then it spits out HTML files and old school, like DOM manipulation interactions. So it's doing all of the heavy lifting before the code gets shipped to the browser and the user gets a really nice lightweight experience. He is in the process of building out this new tool called SvelteKit that gives you like really, really awesome stuff like routing and built-in progressive enhancement. So actually he just recently gave a, a talk and a demo on this at Jamstack Conf last week at time of recording. I'll make sure I get you both a link to that if you want to drop it in the show notes for this one. But in it, he gave this demo about how you, know, you can author author this page with an interactive form. And if JavaScript is supported and loads in the browser, it does ajax form handling. And if for some reason that JavaScript fails, it does an old school HTTP form submit and then manually reloads the page and gives you the same exact experience. But you as an author don't have to write two different applications, like your client-side code and then your server fallback, SvelteKit just takes care of all that for you. And I think this is one of the biggest reasons why people like JavaScript libraries is like they have a single code base to manage. And these compilers are allowing you to get those same benefits without punishing the user for that developer experience. There's another tool that came out. I forget if it's called Atomic or Astro. Astro, yeah. Similar kind of thing, slightly different angle. This one allows you to take all of your favorite client-side library components and mash them together. And then it spits out pre-rendered HTML and like removes as much of the JavaScript as possible. So like you could use a dropdown menu component from React and a card component from Vue and some Svelte files that you started working on And this will kind of mash them all up together for you and spit out like a ton of really small code. Jason Lengenstorf, whose name I almost certainly butchered, and Jason, I'm very sorry, uh, over at Netlify, um, recently tried this on a Next.js project of his. And the resulting build actually had 90% less client-side JavaScript in it and decreased the page load time by 30%, even though it used almost all of the same project code. It just you know produced a much smaller, faster kind of front-end thing with the same developer experience. And so these are the kinds of things that I get really excited about because I'm seeing us like taking everything that we've learned from the five, last five or ten years and um, finally starting to swing the other direction with tooling that doesn't harm the users and will hopefully start to unbreak the web a little bit.
1: So the analogy I use to try to understand this is... Basically, frameworks like React install a runtime into your browser. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like Ruby installs a, a runtime, you're not just compiling down to C calls. You know, you're compiling to C calls, but those C calls are a framework of runtime that you know, is quite large and, and quite feature-rich, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe like the most direct example is in Rust. If you compile with no standard and you don't have a runtime, you're somewhat limited in what you can do now, but you're getting as close to the metal as possible.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. Yeah, that's a good way to describe Safely. it. They really are. Yeah. yeah. I like that.
2: The, 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 I think the analogy goes further, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Rust gives you all that memory safety you wouldn't get with, like, C, and Svelte is doing the same thing with, can we call it DOM safety? <laughs> that <you know. laughs> you know, it's going to help you not make the common errors that you would often get with state
3: manipulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it really, um, you know, it has the potential to uh, to just save you from this situation that happens where the JavaScript breaks and then the whole app falls apart, you know? The less you can rely on that, the better. And it's not that you can't still ship that, like, nice enhanced experience to your users if they can tolerate it, but you end up with something that's a lot more resilient, which is not just better for them, but it's it's better for you. I've just lost track of how many things I haven't, you know, I just, I haven't purchased because I couldn't get the site to work in these JavaScript heavy apps or like, even there's been one or two occasions where my wife has run into an issue on like a web app she's been trying to use. And I've opened up DevTools, found the error, gone into the JavaScript code, fixed the error live, and then like, she's been able to continue and, you know, like... Should I file that with their dev team and like send them a bill for fixing it? Or like, yeah, it's just JavaScript is so unforgiving in the browser and having tools that provide more like fallbacks and safety nets around that is definitely a good thing.
1: Maybe the other thing is that the, the, the runtime starts to take on a whole bunch of responsibilities. Like you just start to pack it full of features. So like in Rust, uh, the runtime does everything from a stack overflow protection to processing command line arguments.
3: Mm-hmm. I don't know Rust that well so I don't have a really good comment on that but <laughs> or I can't necessarily make an analogy between that and JavaScript but that sounds like a good thing. I guess the related thing here is we also have a bad habit as developers just not necessarily, you know, y- you guys personally but just as a community we have a um, a bad habit of doing our work on really high-end machines and testing our work on really high-end machines and like good internet connections and then assuming that like the majority of our user base is like that. And, um, you know, I think React works perfectly fine on a modern, modern smartphone or modern computer and a really good internet connection. But so many of the people who use the things we build don't have either of those things or have one but not the other. And the house of cards really, excuse me, really starts to fall apart in those situations, things become really slow, really buggy, really fast. And uh, this is, again, where we kind of get into the whole, like, there's no professional standards board that says, like, your site has to, you know, has to load this fast on this type of internet connection. Like, there's no, you know, threshold mandating or fault tolerance testing or anything like that, like you might have with a the electrical panel in your house or anything like that. And, you know, maybe there should be. I don't know.
0: And now we want to take a quick timeout to recognize one of our sponsors, Kapersky Labs. Rarely does a day pass where a ransomware attack, data breach, or state-sponsored espionage hits the news. It's hard to keep up or know if you're protected. Don't worry, Kapersky's got you covered. Each week, their team discusses the latest news and trends that you may have missed during the week on the Transatlantic Cable podcast, mixing in humor, facts, and experts from around the world. The Transatlantic Cable Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Go check it out.
2: I was reading something interesting, so I haven't tried it, but I guess it's called HTMX, which are you, are you familiar with it?
3: You are the second person to mention that to me, and I have not played around with it myself, but I heard just a little bit about it. So I'd love to, I'd love to hear your take on it.
2: We might know about the same, but it, what it looks like is it's coming from the other side, which is saying like... You as a developer should really. You're just gonna. You're just gonna author markup, mm-hmm. and from your perspective, you don't know if the browser's native capability is gonna handle it, or if there's gonna be JavaScript that's gonna look at a certain attribute and handle it for you. You just want to handle markup, and I, I just think that's a really interesting take because it sort of gets developers back into the mindset of markup first.
3: You know. You brought up another good point that I totally forgot to mention. So one of the things that I think we're starting to see is, and we saw this with jQuery too. So it's I call it paving of the cow path. And I by no means coined that term. I'm I'm sure you've both heard it before. But so when jQuery came about, there was no good way to get elements by classes. Looping through things was really hard. Like everything, everything about JavaScript kind of sucked. And jQuery really like showed the developer community what a good API around working with the DOM could look like. And it took a long time, but eventually like the browser's standards bodies incorporated a lot of that into what we get out of the platform. And so like the reason query selector and query selector all exist today and the array for each method and like all of these awesome like ways for interacting with the DOM, the class list API the only reason any of that stuff exists is because John Resig and the jQuery team showed us a better way and kind of paved those cow paths. And I, as much as kind of the massive popularity of state-based UI libraries bugs me because I think they're overused, just like jQuery was probably overused in its day, they have really kind of, in many ways, paved the cow path for what a better browser native system could be. and. One of the trends I'd like to see more of is to what you were just talking about, Jacob, HTML doing more of the work and JavaScript doing less of it. I think a really good model for this is in the details and summary elements, which allow you to create a browser-native show-and-hide disclosure component without any JavaScript at all. It's just entirely HTML. You click it, it shows the thing. You click it again, it hides the thing. It's accessible out of the box. If the browser doesn't support it, it's progressively enhanced. You get the full text. Beautiful. I want that for everything. I want that for tabs. I want that for carousels. I want that for image galleries and just any sort of interactive component. Like I want that. And the really nice thing about details and summary, like where I feel they really nailed it is it's stylable. So if you want it to look different, if you want the expand and collapse icon to be styled differently, you can do that. If you want to animate it in, you can do that. Like You can add CSS to make it look the way you want. And if you want to enhance it with some JavaScript, it also exposes a custom JavaScript event that you can hook into and build on top of, but you don't need to. And one of, I think, the biggest boons of JavaScript libraries is the ability to add interactive components complex interactive components with ease i feel like for a lot of developer teams that's a real draw for them they don't have to figure out how to redesign you know like an accordion because there's a component for that and that has the real benefit of like adding more accessibility to the web too but you know it would be really cool if the platform just did that for you and we didn't have to kind of reinvent the wheel but this is where i feel like a lot of um a lot of these libraries are kind of paving the cow paths and hopefully at some point, the platform will catch up and we'll have some of this stuff just baked right in. And I think the the HTML enhanced thing you just referenced is another example of like what that could look like. I think from what I've gathered from it, it's still kind of a runs in the browser type tool, but it allows you to just focus on running HTML. I could be wrong. It could be a compiler. But yeah, I just really want that stuff kind of like out of the box in the browser without me having to think about it. I'm also a lazy developer though, so that's... (laughs) that's part
0: of
1: it yeah me too feel like the sort of two trillion dollar elephant in the room here is that the browser everyone's using is made by google
3: yeah and that used to not be the case right like we've just we've lost a lot of rendering engines in the last three or four years you can do your part by not using chrome i'm not saying you should use firefox i'm on edge A lot of people like Brave. I have very mixed feelings about that one for a variety of reasons. But yeah, no, that is true. Chrome is like, what, 70 or 80% of the market at this point? Yeah. So that, just from like a kind of a tracking and data absorption perspective, is not, not great. One kind of interesting argument I've heard in the past is that it's not necessarily bad if there's only one rendering engine on the web. And browsers are competing on different features like imagine a world where you didn't have to worry about which apis are supported by which browser we're pretty close at this point <laughs> but you know i'm thinking back to when firefox had more kind of popularity and edge was still running on its own operating system and they were just like a little bit out of sync it would be awesome if the entire web ran on a single rendering engine and features were layered on top of that like i think there is potentially an argument for that being a good thing i think the real problem is that that rendering engine is controlled by Google. And so even if you're using a Chromium-based browser that's not Chrome, you know, it's still very much subject to the whims of of what Google wants from the web. And you see that in a lot of the way things get prioritized and what makes it into the platform and what doesn't. And they have a nasty habit of um if they can't get the rest of the folks in the standards board on board, they just kind of like plow ahead with it anyways and then users like start using it and then everybody kind of either follow suit or riots happen. So that is an elephant in the room. And I don't really have a good way to reconcile that kind of sucks.
1: You have you heard about the new idle tracking API fiasco with Google Chrome?
3: No, I haven't. But I'd love to learn more.
1: So like this was in the news a couple weeks ago. So this is pretty fresh. But Google is basically introducing a new API to Chrome that that detects when the users are idle. And like every other browser manufacturer is like, this is an invasion of privacy and you should stop doing it. Meanwhile, Google is also like, you know, web tracking is out of control and has resulted in an erosion of trust. And they say that out of one side of their mouth and to the other mm-hmm. side, they introduce this idle tracking API that, for example, malicious sites could use to determine when it's okay to use your CPU to, to mine Bitcoin.
3: I'm just, I'm thinking about how they recently insisted that, alert had to be deprecated because it's bad for user like security. And now I'm hearing about this and it just really doesn't like, I have a tough time reconciling the like what we say, what we do kind of aspect. Yeah. That's gross. And uh, yeah, that really sucks. I wish Firefox had like maintained more of its market dominance. That would have been nice. Or if the W3C managed the rendering engine so that, you know, browser vendors like, (sighs) weren't kind of controlling that. Yeah, this is all really, um, it's a little bit disheartening. I don't have a really great solution for this kind of stuff. I'm by no means smart enough for that. But for some reason, it seems really, really hard to get a new browser engine in the market, as evidenced by the fact that even big corporations who have tried it eventually just give up and fold and switch over to Chromium. And I'm not enough of a computer science expert to really understand why that is, but I can imagine it's very hard. Especially as the platform gets more complicated.
1: Yeah. I mean, and there's also vendor lock in. So, like on iOS, every browser is secretly WebKit mm-hmm. under the hood because <laughs> they literally aren't allowed to ship their own browser implementations.
3: Right. Yeah. That one's always really fun. That one catches people by surprise. You're running Chrome, but you're actually running Safari under the hood.
2: Mm-hmm. I think um, for a while, for a while, Mozilla wouldn't make an iOS app because they wanted, they didn't want people to think that they were getting everything you associate with Mozilla's values when you download it. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, they have one now and I think it's because they are able to do certain privacy features, even if they can't do all of them. But yeah, that's an interesting debate.
1: Yeah, You know, you could imagine a version of HTML that removes a whole bunch of features that makes it harder to track people, that makes it harder to implement sort of extractive, you know, hidden stuff. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's no way to enforce that a certain site is using that subset. That would have to be done at the browser level, right? Mm -hmm. And Google has no incentive to ever make that possible.
3: I'm thinking now about the web we lost.
1: Yeah, that was actually one of the motivations for Gemini to not try to mess with with HTML. Is you know, look, we can specify this restrictive subset of HTML that meets our needs, but there's no way to guarantee that any particular site you access is actually Mm well-behaving. So they came up with an entirely new protocol so that they could enforce, you know, very strict rules about what a site can do.
2: Hmm. Would that mean end users have to type in Gemini colon slash slash explicitly?
1: Yeah. So So there is a, um, is that called the protocol part of the URL? I think so. So there is a Gemini colon slash slash protocol. Is it scheme? Anyway, there is that. And it has its own protocol definition. One of the goals of the protocol is to be simple enough that you could implement it in about 100 lines and keep it all in your head. That's
3: pretty wild. I'm on the Project Gemini website right now, and this is very old school. Oh, and it uses the details and summary element.
1: That's basically like an HTML proxy for an actual Gemini page. But there's there's no CSS, there's no JavaScript, there are no headers. Aside from the one header that you use to make the request, there are no headers. So you can't insert anything in headers, you know. There's no user agent. Let's see, does this load? No, this doesn't load.
3: I wonder if there's any browsers that have actually incorporated this or that allow you to like
1: No, but there are like a hundred different clients that have been implemented. In, like, every language imaginable.
3: Ooh, I am noticing that it uses, like, a Markdown-esque kind of syntax. I'm looking at the advanced line types here, where you use hashes for headings and asterisks for bulleted lists.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't allow uh, inline links, for example.
3: Mm -hmm. So you can always see, like, what the actual URL that you're going to follow is. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I am. Um... So there is this sort of movement towards, you know, people are interested in moving away from the huge mess that is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, right? For some people, I think, mm-hmm. are interested in this for privacy reasons. Some people, I think, are interested in this for, like, the same sort of, I think, motivation that brought you towards vanilla JavaScript, right? which is, can't we just build sites that work better by not doing all this extra stuff?
3: Yep. And um, they're separate, but they're also like very tightly linked, I think, where a lot of the privacy stuff is what causes a lot of the, the issues that bother me about the way that the web works today. This is an interesting project. I Candidly, I'm not entirely sure this will ever like really catch on in a mainstream fashion. I think the genie is just like way too far out of the bottle. But it is interesting to think about like a, a way the web could be different.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because this is definitely fringe, right? But mm-hmm. fringes are where the interesting stuff happens.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see parts of this informing like what happens on the platform itself. The flip side here is I, I also do kind of like some of the interactivity. Like I hate parallax and animation effects and all that. But I like being able to watch a video in a browser. I think that's pretty cool.
1: And, you know, there are advantages to single page applications to have that, you know, user experience has some, like, I think real advantages over traditional, you know, hypermedia, making a bunch of requests to new pages, stateless, you know, basically we figured out how to re-implement a stateful, thick client, Mm -hmm. right, on top of, on top of HTTP.
3: Yeah, like being able to keep media playing as you navigate around those near instant page loads. Those are pretty sweet. But yeah, that's... um, Man, you're making me really sad about like... <laughs> it's just where the web is today. I hadn't really like really sat on just how pervasive ad tech and like web surveillance are until this conversation. Yeah. It's just really...
1: And it's also like... React is almost like a declaration that the rest manifesto was wrong.
0: Mm.
3: <laughs> it's a bold claim.
1: I mean yeah. React is every you know the original REST documentation basically would make R- React style SPAs impossible.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the um it's just one of the things in that talk Rich Harris from Svelte gave at Conf talked about how, you know, there's kind of this this battle on the internet between the like single page apps are awesome people and the like, no, multi-page apps are better. They're way less complicated, better for accessibility, et cetera. So like, and I admittedly I I tend to fall into that camp more often than not. And he likened it to um almost a bit of a false dichotomy where Like they both have really good points and they both serve important functions. And, you know, sometimes one is the right tool for the job over the other. And so I absolutely have historically kind of maybe come down a little bit too hard on the like SPAs are always terrible, never use them kind of camp when they do sometimes have have good uses. But so his whole talk was about this new term that he was trying to get going called transitional apps, hashtag transitional apps, that... (laughs) <laughs> took the best of both worlds and allowed you to kind of seamlessly move from when one to the other when appropriate without having to just kind of like choose out of the box, like I'm going to build this or I'm going to build that. And I thought that was a really kind of interesting, interesting approach that I hope, I hope we see mature a little bit more over the next year or two um, because I think it has a lot of teeth and could do a lot of good for the web.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Once again, oh. it's the boundary zone between these two things where where the interesting stuff happens, mm-hmm. right? So, like, uh, HTMLX is is sort of a I, I kind of think of of them as like federated multi-page apps. So you make a you, know, you might make multiple requests, but this one's just for this part of the mm-hmm. page, and this one's just for this part of the page. It's
2: yeah. called micro ends Is a Ooh. term I've heard.
1: So, so the the main difference is the micro ends are an SPA thing. And so you have different, different sub-sites rendering different parts of the page, but they each render their own SPA-type thing. Oh, yeah. but, so, but what you have with, like, HTMX or, like, GitHub, this is, for a long time, was GitHub's style, is I want to click this button, and when I click this button, it's going to make a request for a new HTML fragment, and then it's going to put this HTML fragment on the page. Mm-hmm.
2: Type coupling has its has value sometimes.
1: And then you also have things like uh, Phoenix Live View, the Elixir framework, where it looks a lot like a single page app, but it's actually making tons of like server push updates.
3: Mm-hmm. This reminds me a little bit of um, I know they they called it HTML over the wire, that like Hotwire thing that Basecamp <laughs> came out with a year or two ago, and it's like also interesting, you know. Basecamp politics aside, you know where you build your old school monolithic multi-page app and then you kind of layer a light JavaScript client on top of it that simulates a single page app or progressively enhances in some ways into one. I was really, really intrigued by the idea. but The more I played around with it, the more it, like, it pulled in some of the best aspects of both, but also some of the worst aspects of both and ended up being, in my opinion, this weird kind of like Franken project that did did neither one particularly well i just didn't work for me i'm sure for certain types of types of projects it, it can be really useful but yeah this is i think the <laughs> the takeaway for the show is that front end engineering is hard and there's a lot of trade offs you have to make no matter what and i love to sit in my ivory tower and postulate about this stuff while building really simple and really narrow apps that get by just fine as a multi page vanilla javascript thing because they're not doing that much
1: So speaking of uh, front-end development is hard. There is a particular way in which front-end development is becoming incredibly complex. And it is this movement away from client-server models, away from uh, Shannon communication style. I make a request, you give me a response. I make a request, you give me a response. This sort of uh, serial communication, right? Mm -hmm to a form of communication that's called joint activity, which is where just everything's happening all at once. You know, I'm not making a request and waiting for a whole new page back. This part of the page is updating, this part of the page is updating. I'm typing over here just a whole bunch of stuff happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this is a paradigmatically different form of communication than request response. Hmm.
3: Do you have an example of that? I'm having a really tough time like, picturing what that looks like in my head.
1: So there's a book called Joint Cognitive Systems that introduces this stuff if folks are interested. But think about incident response. During an incident, you're not synchronously causing things to happen and then getting the response. You have this person looking at this dashboard. And you have this person on this machine doing this it's all just happening all at once and you're not blocking waiting on every next piece of information. The information arises in the environment whenever it does and you have to react to it in real time. There's no guarantee that only one thing will be happening at a time. Any number of things can happen at the same time. It's basically completely (laughs) non-blocking. Yeah. If several people are typing is actually a really good example. It's you, you no longer have the expectation that you're in this synchronous serial mode of communication with a single other entity, just mm-hmm. anything, you know, the, the entire environment is changing in, in, in whatever ways it needs to, and you have to respond to all of it. And so React apps are starting to become more like this where, you know, the dashboards that you build today for that you use to respond to incidents are, are like this. You know, you've got sixteen little widgets, and they're all updating at the same time. Well, which one am I supposed to look at? Is that the one that shows me where the problem is, or is it this one? You know,
3: <sighs> this also kind of makes me wonder—not wonder, just think out loud. It sometimes feels like the things we build, and this is this is like a—it it, just—I'm admitting right up front, this is dumb. But it sometimes feels like the things we build are potentially more complicated than they need to be. And I don't mean from like a, the engineering under the hood, but there's a, there's a tendency to like kitchen sink all the things, you know, like if one is good, five is better. And that's not always the case. Uh, I think about, for example, Facebook, which has, you know, like eight different things built into it. And would each of those things be better if it was his own standalone application that had like a very narrow focus, like potentially, you know, that's just a really kind of high level throwaway comment that I think someone could very easily pick apart and point out like all these examples of why it's stupid and wrong. But it also feels like if we didn't try and do this with everything we built, it would potentially alleviate a lot of the problems and challenges we have with all these like moving parts and complexity. Admittedly, just a random thought that popped into my head. So, you know, not very well developed in the slightest.
1: So it it seems like we've sort of organically moved into reflections, which is right on time. Yes, indeed. I think my reflection is, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, Chris, that you're, like you said, interested in both vanilla JavaScript and in privacy. Right. There's some, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit, but there's some deep connection between these two things, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think that the solution to one might be found in the other one and potentially vice versa. You know, I think if we design like moving in the direction of vanilla JavaScript, I also think moves us in the naturally moves us in the direction of, of increased privacy. And yes, maybe, potentially maybe. So, the thing that I struggle with is how to motivate people to move in this direction, you know, because a lot of people have a lot of different conflicting goals there. They may be in contexts that make it difficult for them to move in that direction. You know, they work at a startup where selling user data is part of the business model and you're not going to get a product person on the same page with you on removing this tracker. It's not going to happen. Right. Where are the actual levers that that allow us to make you know to, to make progress in these directions?
3: Yeah. For me, I think um, because I've been thinking about this a lot. I think this is one of the reasons why I, I'm particularly excited about this new bit of tooling that I'm seeing come out. Cause I am not personally big on lots of tooling for the things that I build, but I noticed that a large chunk of the community is. And I think tools that make it easier to build things, but also kind of keep the cost to the user down, whether it's like privacy or just the amount of shipped code are a very good thing. And so when I look at compilers like Astro and Svelte, or I look at like that that tool we were talking about earlier, Party Town, that kind of keeps those third-party tracking scripts off the main thread, that's great. I think the other lever here is browsers themselves and like the platform itself and what gets baked in, I think we already kind of talked a little bit about, you know, how I think as long as Google is the dominant player in the browser market, there's only so much we can really do there because it is very much against their corporate interest to do that. But, you know, having platform native ways to do the things we want to do um, in a way that's easy and painless, kind of like that path of least friction is in my opinion probably the like one of the more powerful paths forward.
2: I have uh, two reflections. The first is I think the web did peak at live journal <laughs> for lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah. The second is I'm thinking a lot about the sort of software education industry and the whole space of just sort of new developers generally and there is a lot of pressure in that spot about, like, gotta learn React. got it. you know, it's all about single page apps and showing what, that you can use modern tooling, quote unquote, which means React and probably lots of other complicated things that change every six months. And I can't help but think about how that's actively shaping the web. And yeah, it's making me wonder, like, what would be different if we were encouraging developers to think about what tool would be best for what job and how React isn't the right tool for many jobs? So, yeah.
3: Yeah, I strongly agree. Strongly agree. There's definitely this kind of perception that, you know... if you're not using React, you're not like serious about what you're building. And I I, I think the education market plays a, a big role in that. Yeah. On my end, I think one of the big things that came out of this talk that I was not, was not actually expecting to go in that direction. So it was really interesting was just around the whole um, privacy angle and how difficult it really is to like maintain that privacy on the web, even with, you know, tools like, VPNs and ad blockers and stuff, like the, the platform itself keeps making it harder and harder. And uh, yeah, I, I just really wish that weren't the case.
1: I really enjoy this episode.
3: Yeah, no, I, I guess the only other thing I would, I would add is if people enjoy having these conversations or just want to tell me how wrong I was about something, I have a daily newsletter over at things.com that may or may not be of interest to you.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us again.
3: Thanks for having me. This was a this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.